0: Okay, so when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, uh, do you remember remember how he started? Remember his intro? Yeah, that's right. Did God really say? So his tactic was obviously to get God's people to doubt God's word. And over the years, Satan's strategy has been consistent and he is still whispering Um. And he is whispering in our ears. He's whispering in everybody's ears. And uh, unfortunately, you know, still, it still works. I, we have to confess this. It's good to confess this. It still works with us. <laughs> it still works with me sometimes. It still works with you. This is the strategy that he uses. And we are weak and we are in need. So sometimes it still works with us. <clears throat> now, one of the main ways in which he is still whispering, did God actually say is in the realm of sexuality. Does God actually say, did God actually say, you can't have sex outside of marriage? Does God actually say homosexual behavior is wrong? You know, Does God really say? Now, in brief, yes. That, that is what God says. But so often, even Christians, we can struggle to understand why. So you know we have a sense as that men and women are different, but given the onslaught of of information coming that's from a different worldview. Sometimes we can get a little confused and we're like, you know what, I'm really convinced that men and women are different, but I'm having trouble articulating why now. <laughs> and so we need to go back to the Bible and we need to look at Genesis 1 and we need to look at Genesis 2 and then we need to look at Ephesians 5. And, and then we begin to get a robust doctrine of gender, right, and and, and, we, and we get strengthened and we're like, yeah, 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 men and women are different. I have clarity on this. It is binary. That's not a bad word. That's a good word uh, as it relates to gender. So, same thing with sexuality, I think that we can believe these things but then struggle to understand why, and if our intuitions and instincts aren't just steeped in a biblical worldview, then God's design for sexuality may seem just really arbitrary and subjective and restrictive, if we're not steeped in a biblical worldview. And so, here's what we want to do tonight, we just want to examine the Bible's positive vision for sexuality, okay, So, today we're not going to so much focus on individual laws or commands on sex. Instead, our class today is just going to take a step back. It's going to take the whole biblical vista, and it's going to try to explain why such commands about sexuality make sense. So, we're going to examine God's original design for sex and marriage. We're going to look at Jesus and the abundant life. He lived as an unmarried man who was not sexually active. We're going to look at his teaching about abstaining from sex and marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And then with all that in mind, we're going to consider same-sex attraction as a case study for how this biblical vision for sexuality speaks to the brokenness and sexual condition in our world right now. So through it all, my prayer is that we would see that God actually values sex much, much, much more highly than the world does. And hopefully we'll see the beauty and the goodness of God's design for sexuality. So let's just start at the beginning Turn with me to a very familiar text at this point, which is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now here we see sexual complementarity. Okay, big word. Male and female, he created them. We see sexual complementarity there. We also see procreation, God's command to be fruitful and multiply. See that right there in Genesis 1, 27-28. Turn to Genesis 2 and we're going to discover that these things are linked. Sexual complementarity and procreation. Complementarity meaning different. Male, female. Um, in, in In a unscientific way, they they fit together and go together, male and female, okay? Sexual complementarity, men and women are different, and then procreation, we see that in Genesis 1, and we're going to see that those two things go together in Genesis 2. Um, God creates Adam first, he says it's not good for Adam to be alone in 2.18, so by himself, Adam isn't able to be fruitful and to be multiply, multiply. And no suitable helper is found for him among the animals. So just pick it up with me in verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the first marriage. So for Adam, it takes someone who is both like him and unlike him to be fruitful and multiply. So she's bone of his bone. She's flesh of his flesh. They share a common humanity, both made in the image of God. But yet they are not identical. They are not the same. She's a woman. He's a man. Now what does it mean that marriage is a one-flesh union? Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5:28 through32, where he actually cites this passage. I'm just going to read it to you. You can go there if you want, Ephesians 5:28 through32. Paul cites this passage in Genesis. He says this: "In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Human beings are body and soul, and when a husband and a wife marry... Their lives are united and their bodies are united through sexual intercourse. Their relationship of union symbolizes the union between Christ and the church. As the bride in the book of Solomon says, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. In other words, marriage is a relationship of mutual self-giving, a self-giving that isn't merely sexual, but in which a sexual union plays a unique role in joining the couple as one flesh. Okay, So what is marriage? Here's just a definition. Marriage is a covenantal bodily union of one man and one woman, open to the gift of procreation, symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church. So a covenantal bodily union of one man and one woman, Open to the gift of procreation, symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church. So we're just going to pick apart that definition for just a second. So a marriage is covenantal, okay? That means it's exclusive. It's founded on fidelity. It's intended to be permanent, only dissolved at death. Though I believe Scripture does provide legitimate grounds for divorce. Divorce is to be rare and unusual because Jesus taught, quote, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Matthew 19, 6. Next, marriage is a bodily union. They shall become one flesh. So that means that marriage is normally, almost always, consummated and sealed by sexual intercourse. Sex both enacts and depicts the one flesh union of a man and a woman. The union of a married couple is more than physical, but it almost always includes the physical. Union, and then third on the next page your handout. Marriage is a union of one man and one woman in particular. Gender complementarity, okay, is definitional to marriage, not optional. Okay, so that's why there is no such thing in in the universe actually as homosexual marriage. Okay, like it actually doesn't exist in the world. I know that we say it exists, but it actually doesn't marriage itself as god tells us what it is is in fact complementary from a sexual perspective male and female so there is no reality of homosexual marriage it just doesn't exist we've we've created it but it's not there two reasons why first two reasons why gender complementarity is definitional to marriage okay not optional it's it's the essence of the thing two reasons number one Because as you see in our definition, procreation is one of the designed ends for marriage. Now keep in mind what we're doing here. We're laying foundations that are honestly kind of common sense obvious, but in the fog and confusion of our culture which pushes such illogical, not common sense things, we actually just need to take a step back and just think about our foundations. Otherwise, we're just going to be we're not going to be equipped and confident with what the Bible actually says and not equipped and confident to teach our kids or to defend our faith or to know when we should stand up for what we believe in the workplace or in the public square or any number of things. So we're actually just taking a step back. So if you think well, this is really obvious, some of it is going to be obvious, just like it's obvious that there are boys and there are girls. Uh, but we actually just need to like lay foundation work to where we're confident in it. So that's what we're doing. Okay, So... Why is gender complementarity definitional to marriage, not optional? First, because as you see in our definition, procreation is one of the designed ends for marriage. And again, marriage is the God-given means in Genesis 2 for for fulfilling the God-given command in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. A man and a woman are both necessary for procreation. Not only that, but as we've seen in previous weeks in the class... God has given fathers and mothers distinct roles to play in the nurture and in the care of children. Now, of course, we remember that because of the fall, not all married couples are going to be able to conceive. That's a sad and true reality. So in Genesis 3, the curse on the woman involves pain and childbearing. As the book of Genesis continues on, we see that barrenness is one of the effects of the curse We mourn with those who desire to have kids and yet they haven't received this blessing. But still, the reality of infertility doesn't mean that procreation isn't part of sex in its original and foundational design. Sex and procreation cannot be broken apart. But openness to procreation, the possibility of it, is an integral aspect of sex. And and that necessitates a man and a woman to procreate, okay? Two, a marriage is only a marriage if it is between a man and a woman because marriage is a picture of two distinct parties in covenantal union. This gets at our phrase, symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church, In Ephesians 5, we see that marriage teaches us about the church's relationship to Christ because the wife and the husband are different and fulfill different and distinct roles. These roles are consistent with their God-given gender. A so-called marriage of the people of the same sex would not have the same symbolic meaning, and therefore it does violence to the gospel. And so it's illegitimate. Now, with this definition in mind, what have we learned about sex? Well, the lesson that we should draw is that marriage and sex are mutually interpreting realities. The marriage union is sealed and reaffirmed through sex. So sex is, in part, what ratifies a marriage. Sex helps us to see what marriage is. Now, at the same time, though, sex receives its meaning and legitimacy from the marriage relationship. Sex is not merely an act, but rather it is the union of a married man and woman. This means that from the standpoint of the Bible, sex between a man and a woman in marriage is sex, pure and simple. Every other kind of sexual activity is, properly speaking, not sexual. True sex. It may involve sexual behaviors, but outside the context of marriage, it's counterfeit and it doesn't bear the same meaning. You can set up a basketball hoop on a golf course. You can bring two basketball teams onto the grass and play a game that looks a lot like basketball, but if it is not on a real approved court, it will not count for the NBA standings. The teams may be going through the same motions. But their activity is outside the proper domain for a true basketball game, one that really counts. Basketball on grass isn't really basketball at all. Tennis on grass can be, however, deep thoughts. All right. In the same way, we're seeing that sex outside of biblical marriage isn't really sex at all. Everybody with me? You're learning a lot tonight. Alright, so that can help us make sense of a chapter like Leviticus 18. When some people read Leviticus 18, a chapter like that just seems filled with a bunch of thou shalt nots. This text includes laws against all sorts of illicit sexual activity, so incest, homosexuality, adultery, bestiality. Or a chapter like 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says that those who commit sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality, among other sins like greed and reviling, those those people who do such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But really these chapters are just putting in the negative what Genesis 2 had already put in the positive. These laws are gracious guardrails to help the people of God understand what true sex is. Sex is a marital union, and everything short of marital union is a hollow counterfeit. So God's design isn't meant to hinder our joy. To the contrary, his purpose is to maximize our joy and for us to enjoy his good gifts Free from the perversions of sin. Okay? Now I'm going to keep going and I'm just going to give a, a time for questions and answers at the end. Okay? So, let's just look at sex as fulfillment on your, on your outline there. The example of Jesus. Now, a biblical view of marriage should help us to see that what God has actually said about sex makes a great deal of sense after all. Sex is marital union, but still, this can be a hard teaching. And one of the reasons the biblical view of sexuality seems difficult to many is because in the last couple of centuries in our culture, we have come to see sex as mainly involving personal fulfillment and pleasure. So in past eras, authoritative instruction about life primarily came from some authority figure outside of yourself, okay? Such as God, your nation, your family, your particular tribe. And in this framework, sex is defined by a broader framework for morality outside of yourself, okay? But beginning with the Enlightenment and the Romantic movements in the 18th and 19th centuries... Our culture has moved to a place in which moral authority is increasingly lodged where? Take a guess. Me. Me. Me, myself, and I. You, yourself, you. Nobody outside of you, only you. It's self-determined. Rather than the religious life... By the way, this is a bad thing. (laughs) Okay, that's really, really bad. Okay. Uh, so if you're like, huh? That sounds interesting. Just mark, really bad idea. Okay, according to God, really bad idea. Because who's the authority? Who determines everything? God. Okay, so for that reason alone, it's bad. Okay, uh, and it also leads to a lot of national, political, and cultural chaos. It doesn't lead to human society flourishing. Now, okay, slight rant over. Rather than the religious life consisting of being... Oh, sorry. So, so in the 18th 19th centuries, you know, authority moved from the place that's, that's increasingly self-determined. Rather than the righteous life consisting of being faithful to your God or to your nation or to your family, the moral life now means that you're faithful first and foremost to yourself, including your desires. Right? So that means personal desires have actually become elevated to a level of moral authority. Don't you see that in the world? Where justification for right or wrong, don't you see it with your friends? Justification for right or wrong is lodged in the fact that this is what seems right to me. And what feels natural to me. And what is viewed as one of the highest goods, moral goods of our society, is moral authenticity. Don't you know that? Don't you see that? We just want to be authentic. Whatever feels authentic to us must be right because it feels authentic to us. Okay? Again, if you think it sounds cool, write down bad. Really bad. So personal desires have become elevated to a level of moral authority. According to many people, the greatest sin is to refuse to fulfill your personal desires, especially your sexual desires. That's why many are talking about, by the way, if you just want some podcast to listen to that talks about um, cultural, political, societal things and thinking about them through a lens of, of a biblical worldview, listen to Al Mohler's The Briefing. It's every single day. Uh, he takes one month off in August. I believe. No, July. July. He takes July off, but otherwise he's on every day, Monday through Friday. It's 20 minutes. You can put it on 1.5 speed and cruise through it in 15 minutes in your car. Listen to it in uh, while you're making some dinner or breakfast, whatever it may be. And he's just going through stories in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and uh, Time Magazine, everything like that. And he's just looking at everything from a Christian worldview. And one thing that he says, which is quite right, is he says that the is that um, sexual freedom is replacing religious freedom. A newly invented sexual liberty is, is swallowing up the actually enshrined, enshrined in our Constitution religious liberty. Um, and so if you just want a news source where you can reflect on things through a Christian worldview that are happening in the news out there, I'd encourage you to check that out. So, in our world... To many people, the greatest sin is to refuse to fulfill your personal desires, especially your sexual desires. But we as Christians have to recognize this is at odds with Scripture. Nowhere does Scripture say that our fallen desires are a faithful guide for what is good or right. Nor does it teach that sexual expression or fulfillment is essential to living a full and abundant life. That's a, I think we could all agree on the first one, but the second one is, is maybe a new thought for some of you. So, follow me. I'm saying, and I think you recognize the first one, our own fallen desires, the scripture does not say that this is a faithful guide for what is good and right. I think we'd all be like, Jeremiah 17, 9, I'm there with you, preach it, right? Okay, but scripture also nowhere says that sexual expression or fulfillment is essential to living a full and abundant life. In other words, you can live a full and abundant life having never had sex. So to see this, I want to spend a little bit of time considering what we'll call the sexuality of Jesus. I know that sounds a little weird, but let's just consider the life of Jesus and what it teaches us about what it means to be a sexual being. By the sexuality of Jesus, I actually mean two things. Number one, the fact that Jesus has a sex. He is male. The eternal son of God took on flesh. He united a human nature to his divine nature. He died and rose again in a glorified body. And he's now seated in heaven as an embodied human man at the right hand of God the Father. Therefore, gender is good. Jesus didn't come as a genderless person. It's because there is no such thing as a genderless person. He came as a real person with a real body and he was really a man. He never wore skinny jeans. This doesn't mean, I'm kidding, I've actually have become, I have come close to wearing skinny jeans myself which is forcing me to understand they are not inherently feminine. I don't know if I'm going to wear them ultimately, but I've tried them. It felt really weird. Okay. Now, I feel like I've lost all moral authority to teach this class now. Um, No, we're going to keep going. Um, All right. So, uh, he did come as a real person with a real body. He came as a real man. Now, that doesn't mean that femininity is less important or valuable than masculinity. And let's remember that. The Son of God affirmed the goodness of womanhood. He was born of a woman. Quite literally, he was conceived in and inhabited Mary's womb. Okay. Second, by the sexuality of Jesus, I mean that Jesus is himself a sexual being. As a real human person, he took on a body capable of sexual activity, and yet he refrained from sexual activity. This means that it is possible to be fully human, totally content, and abstain from sex for one's whole life. The term for this is chastity. Chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Jesus didn't avoid sex because sex is bad or he was somehow too dignified for it. No, he taught that marriage as a one flesh union is good and it's part of God's design. As he said in Matthew 19:4 through six, but rather getting married simply, it wasn't part of his mission on earth and praise God. It wasn't part of his mission because Christ's example shows that you can live a life of service to God, fulfilled joy and contribution to the good of others without sex. So sexual activity is not essential to being human or to ultimate satisfaction. Yet it is also important for us to see that Jesus as a single man wasn't just hold off in a monastery living alone. He had committed intimate friendships. John calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved or John calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. In John 11:5, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus did not express his sexuality within marriage, but he did have many meaningful, loving, significant relationships. And in that, too, he's a model for us. Now, many of us may hear this teaching about Christ's life of chastity and say to ourselves something to the effect of, same thing we think about a sinlessness, right? We think, well, that's easy for him. He's God um to which i would say first yes of course christ is the god man and we must absolutely affirm that and not shy away from that and we also must affirm that he did live fully as a man his divinity did not take away in any way and eliminate his humanity his humanity okay so he knew struggle He resisted Satan. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that he, quote, suffered when tempted, end quote. And as one who identifies with us fully in our human weakness, we know that he delights to give, quote, grace to help in time of need, end quote, when we are tempted as well. So that's Hebrews 4.16. So, should we expect that some of Jesus' followers might live lives of fruitful and fulfilled chastity as he did. I think so. Yes. We should expect that. We should celebrate that. In fact, that's what Jesus himself said. Just listen to Matthew 19:12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth... And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now let me just help you receive it by helping you understand it for a second. A eunuch refers to somebody who is unable to have sex. As Jesus explained, some people are eunuchs from birth. So due to physical deformities that result from the fall, certain individuals may not be able to engage in sex. Jesus also recognizes that that there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. In the ancient world, some royal male servants were castrated so that they could serve in the women's quarters and not pose any threat of sexual assault or infidelity. Um, And how comforting it is that Jesus knows and sees those who are in difficult conditions like that. And yet again, we can remember Jesus' own example that a life without sex is not a second-class life. And then what he says next reinforces that. There are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And here he's t- returning to an idea of a eunuch metaphorically. He's saying that some Christians will choose a, a state of ongoing singleness, perhaps for a season, perhaps for their whole lives, and they're going to choose that state for the sake of serving his kingdom. The Apostle Paul was one of those who did that. He explained in 1 Corinthians 7 that those who are single are freed from the concerns to care for a spouse. And they can, uh, and they can devote more of their energies to serve the broader kingdom. Now, of course, there are many single believers who have, a, who have an unmet desire for marriage. I, you know we we know brothers and sisters who are in that state. They are single believers, they have an unmet desire for marriage. Marriage can be a wonderful desire. We must recognize that not all single believers experience and feel their singleness to be the gift that it is. We got to emphasize with those who are in a season of longing, but still, we have to empathize. Did I say empathize? I meant to say empathize. Did I say that? All right. we must empathize with those who are in a season of longing. But still, believers longing for marriage can take comfort that Jesus affirms the value of singleness and chastity and he himself lived out the goodness of the single life. So, what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen that God's design for sexuality within marriage is good. In fact, it's great. It's awesome. We've seen that sex is a covenantal, that sex is covenantal union. And so all forms of sexual sin fall short of God's design. And we've seen that Jesus, an unmarried man, is our prime example for holy sexuality, though he never engaged in sex. Okay. Now, I want us to move and talk about same-sex attraction, same-sex attraction a bit. How do all of these things play out on the ground on the ground level of the Christian life. Let's just turn to one big example, the issue of same-sex attraction. Okay, So how does the biblical vision we've been exploring speak to the very real situation of a person who feels a deep and or a persistent predisposition towards erotic attraction to people of the same sex? There there may be people here who would say that sentence describes them or has described them at some point. What can we say about this situation? I think there are four things, at least, that we can say. Number one, we must recognize the reality that fallen people have fallen desires. This should not surprise us. Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul's clear in Ephesians 5. Two, 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Desiring sin is natural for sinners and that includes sexual desires and that includes heterosexual lust and homosexual lust alike. In fact, In Titus three three, it says that in our sin we were all, all, all means all, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So though creation is good and sex is good, let's be clear about that. Creation is good, sex is good. Our desires are distorted, and so we we must not, we cannot redefine sex according to our desires. But instead, those who are saved have to depend upon God to transform our desires. Romans twelve one, In accord with His will. So, we've got to clearly state that same-sex sexual desires are wrong. And note, that, note what I said there. I was very specific about that sentence. Same-sex sexual desires are wrong. I said desires. We must identify the desire itself as wrong, not simply the acting on the desire. okay, But the desire itself we have to identify as sin. okay. Second, Scripture equips us to offer an answer to the question, what if someone is born that way? I mean, you, you increasingly hear that. Now actually it's interesting, both social scientists um, and psychologists are also saying there's increased uh, research that's coming out that's like putting that on shaky ground as to, and saying that actually sexual desires can be quite, quite fluid um, in both men and women, which is kind of cutting against this born-this-way uh, dogma that, was, that, that, that is still quite strong, but it's cutting against it some. But what do we as Christians say to that? Well, even if someone were born with desires contrary to biblical teaching on sexuality and marriage, number one, that wouldn't surprise us. Number two, it wouldn't invalidate the Bible's teaching that these desires are sinful and wrong. David says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The point is, all of us are born with selfish and sinful desires. Do same-sex desires come from nature or nurture? Well, it could be both, and I would say it is both. The doctrine of original sin teaches us that none of us are exempt. We don't have to be taught to desire sin. Everybody knows this that has little kids, you know. You you don't have to teach the kids to be selfish. They just are little sinners. Uh, So, wicked longings are innate to our fallen condition, And at the same time, we are raised and nurtured in a sinful world that is opposed to God. So, by the way, you're going to continue to see these like gender confusion, gender dysphoria, homosexuality, and all of the other adjectives that are getting hard to follow. And it's like I need a note card to keep up with them all and what they all mean. You're going to see that continue to roll and see people can struggle with it even more because we're being encouraged that they're good. So if we're being encouraged that we're good. Um, then, unfortunately, you know, nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds and eleven-year-olds and twelve-year-olds are going to think, "Well, this is... I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about this. I'm feeling this. Maybe this is good." And they're going to be encouraged. This is good, so they're just going to continue to walk in that path. When, in all reality, they need some sane and loving person to say, "This is actually bad, and this is not true. It's not real, and we need to help you." Um, but that's that's not what's happening, which is unfortunate. But it, it does need to happen in the church. So. Uh, so wicked longings are innate to our fallen condition, and at the same time, we're raised and nurtured in a sinful world that's opposed to God and increasingly okay with that which God is not okay with, and so other people may m- mislead us. We may, they may even sin against us in ways that then make us confused about what's right and wrong. That's number two. Third, we must on one hand affirm that all sins make us deserving of condemnation. Okay? We need to affirm that. All sins make us worthy of condemnation. Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. There are many believers who experience same-sex attra- sex attraction and yet are actively seeking to live lives of holiness and submission to Jesus Christ. And such brothers and sisters are not in a different class of Christianity. They're not dirtier than the rest of us. All of us have perverted, wicked, ungodly desires, Some of which, um, some of which we are repenting from. Christ died and rose to save all kinds of sinners, whoever repents of sin and trusts in him. okay? So number one, we got to affirm that you know all sin makes us worthy of condemnation. At the same time, on the other hand, we shouldn't forget that homosexual activity is a particularly consequential denial of God's design for marriage and sex. Romans 1 describes homosexual sin as an outflow of a wholesale rejection of God's lordship as creator. Homosexual behavior takes the institution of marriage which is intended to portray Christ in the church and it and it distorts and it grabs that picture and it just twists it okay fourth our posture towards believers who experience same sex attraction must be one of compassion kindness gentleness and speaking the truth in love the ultimate goal for anybody with a same sex desire isn't to develop heterosexual attractions, and get married, though those things are possible, okay? Um, and remember, one could still become attracted to people of the opposite sex and still sin by lusting after them, okay? Uh, the goal isn't necessarily heterosexual desires, but holiness, okay? Holiness. And, and identifying the homosexual desire as sin and fighting against that through the power of the gospel, Okay? Not by pulling up your bootstraps and just saying, I'm going to stop doing this, but recognizing your need for a savior, how Jesus has met that need, and then finding your identity in him. So here's my question for the class. If a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction is getting to know you, are you the type of person they'll be able to trust? Can they confide in you about this? Recognize that experiencing same-sex attraction can be very confusing, very challenging, very intimidating, very touchy. I encourage you to listen, show that you care. Be aware that the world is sending strong signs about homo- signals about homosexuality. Some of our brothers and sisters in their flesh, in their weakest moments, would love to believe those lies. Just as all of us have lies we are prone to want to believe at certain times. Okay? Pray for them to have courage and to stand strong. And also ask how you can care for them. Perhaps, above all, don't define them in your mind by this one particular desire. That is a good reminder that we must see each other as far more than any one particular sin or any one particular struggle. Okay, So our identity, all of our identity is in Christ. So, with that said, let me just... Land a few points of application Then just open it up to questions um, Number one We should honor marriage Hebrews 13 4 says Let marriage be held in honor among all And let the marriage bed be undefiled For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous So let's honor marriage And let's pray for those who are married That God would bless them with faithfulness and with purity Let's pray that their marriages would be a witness to the world Of Christ's love for his church That's number one Number two, we should honor singleness. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Marriage is a good thing to desire, but the end of the Christian life is not to become married, have 2.5 kids, and live on three acres of land in Vermont where you can have a nice barn and build some stuff and ride four-wheelers. Okay, Although that's cool. Um, The end of the Christian life is to reach the new heavens and the new earth where human marriage will be no more. We should never treat a single Christian as a second-class Christian. In fact, single Christians are living preview of what every Christian's condition is going to be on the final day. Not married to any human being, but part of the bride of Christ. That's number two. And then number three, we should cultivate strong friendships. Our culture has elevated romantic and sexual love to the exclusion of other forms of friendship and affection. But the church is a spiritual family that should be full of thick relationships where we know and where we are known and where that happens intimately. So the water that, you you had said that, that, uh, what's the saying about something being thicker than blood? Blood is thicker than water. Well, my friends, the water of baptism is thicker than blood. Okay, that's true. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. Ultimately, the church that we... It is so important, ultimately, in the church that we see the biblical vision for sexuality lived out as married and single believers alike walk in purity and faithfulness and holiness and love and friendship together, seeking the world that's to come. Okay, So that's the end of the material. we got some time. we got like 10 minutes. I wanted to get through that to where we could give you time for questions. What questions do you have about uh, anything regarding sexuality? Are the things we've been talking about tonight, or any any comments, any comments or questions? <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um.
2: So I'm thinking about priests, and I'm thinking that you know, as as a Protestant, I'm like, well, that's just silly because you know, men are meant to be married and you know, be sexual and everything, Um, and they just distorted that. But but after hearing you talk about it, um, it kind of does sound like chastity could be a way to glorify God, you know, even by choice, right? Um. So it's not. It's definitely not bad.
0: Is it better? Like, yeah. Two thoughts. Minutes. Number one, I think where the Roman Catholic Church gets it wrong is in requiring that of of all. Okay? That should not be something that is put upon somebody from the outside as a condition to minister the gospel officially. Um, so I think that's where that's wrong and, 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 it, and, and twisted. Okay? Um, but then... Number two, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul seems to say very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7 that the, I believe it's 7, um, that the, the unmarried is able to serve the Lord in a more undistracted and wholehearted way than the married. And so he says, I wish that all men were like myself. So there is a particular advantage to being single, a particular single-mindedness that you can have, that the married simply is unable to have. So there is a sense in which it is, there is a sense in which it is desirable. um, More desirable than marriage as it relates to effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Single-mindedness for the kingdom of God.
1: That's perfect. I mean, clearly God intended man to have a helper. So I guess you're layering on advantageous in terms of a life spreading the gospel, but in our in our human condition, I think, you know, in, in our creative condition, it seems to me that Genesis one says God intended us to have
0: a helper. He he did. So I think I think I think both are good. Is the reality? I think we I think the Apostle Paul is highlighting, which I think it's a it's a good highlight. He's just highlighting the single mindedness that you can have if you're married. Um, Because I think we have a—if you're single, single, sorry. Because I think we already have, from a biblical worldview, we already have a robust understanding of the blessedness of marriage. We have that from Genesis 1. It's not—it's not a. We should, if we have a robust biblical worldview, we have a robust doctrine of marriage, and that it's a blessing and it's wonderful. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it seems as though Paul was saying, "But I also want you to know, there's this massive benefit." Of this side of things. And I just want you to know that. Missy. question
3: about um, people who struggle with homosexuality. And I wasn't clear. Would you say that believers can struggle with that like every other sin? Or yes. So your question
0: is can believers struggle with homosexual desire? I think they can. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and be real believers. Yes. So the issue is, is are you willing to identify the desire as as sin and say this is wrong and repent of that and give it to the Lord and seek to walk in holiness and purity, even in your thought life? Absolutely. I mean, we all have wicked desires.
3: they Yeah. So this is saying she's
0: seen in the church, but she's just she just ma- would make the assumption that they're not real believers. I would say, I mean. No, absolutely. they can absolutely be believers. I mean, as believers, we, it, the question is, which, which wicked and sinful thoughts do you struggle with? <laughs> and are you willing to identify them as such and not make excuses for them or accept them or walk in them, but instead receive the cleansing power of Christ's blood to be forgiven of them? And then the cleansing power of his blood to continue to walk in holiness, even though this may be a, a desire that you struggle with in your heart. Good, those are good questions. Any other questions or comments? Josh?. I
1: have how would you delineate or define the difference in between desire and temptation? What is something that's tempting? Does that require desire, or is that apart from desire? Are tempted desiring something?
0: So, sometimes... Uh, so, I think they're very similar. Um, sometimes we are tempted uh, by our own desires that arise from within, right? And sometimes we are tempted by a desire that comes to us externally that we weren't necessarily looking for, and then it sparks a desire from within. And so I think they're very, very similar and they go together, but I think we're tempted whenever we experience desire, and sometimes our desire is internal in it, uh, and sometimes, the, but sometimes a temptation in the form of desire comes to us from the outside and then it sparks this internal thing. So, does that make sense?
1: Not simply following up on the act of the desire. Mm-hmm. And we're saying that Jesus was in every way tempted the same as we are. And again, if kind of like you're saying in Hebrews... Um, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because in every respect he's been tempted as we are. And if temptation is something that's lacking desire, we say somehow well Jesus was perfect because he was tempted, but he didn't desire those things, then how can he sympathize with us if he didn't also have a desire? And even in the garden in the sense that he's praying, let us pass cup. They'll let us cup pass, but not my will, but your will. Be. Then there's a sense in which you're saying, "Okay, God, I'm not. wanting want to do this. I want to desire. I'm desiring something different here, but at the same time, I want to do Your will." So he's subjecting his desire to the will of the Father. But so then, how is desire sin as opposed to acting on the desire? If
0: Jesus is Where I would say that the desire itself is sin. So the the thing about Jesus and his desires, that's that's pretty. That's pretty thorny, uh, and that's, a, that's, a, that's honestly a, a, a good question to wrestle through. I think what we'd have to say is that he never had a sinful desire. I think we have to say that, okay? But yet we'd also have to say that he does identify with us in every way. Now, he didn't have a sinful desire, but he identifies with us in every way. How does that work? I'm not quite sure. I just see the Bible affirming both, so I'm not quite sure how that fits together. But I'll, I'll take both of them at face value, and it's true, Okay? Where I would say that where I would say that biblically um, that we would need to identify uh, sin basically I'm saying when I say the desire homosexual desire is sin I'm saying that the desire for it in your heart okay and I think we have to say that when we look at Jesus's words when he talks about you've heard it said don't commit adultery but I say if you lust in your heart you've you've committed adultery so he lodges he lodges the sin in an inward desire, not merely an outward action.
1: We can say oh, this, particular, this person's wife is attractive without lusting. So could you have know, the same sex attraction? Say, as a man, that man is attractive to me, but then not still lust after him. the lust is the sin, and not the attraction. I think that's possible. Yeah, so you could have a same-sex attraction that's separate than
0: the same-sex. Attraction. I wouldn't call a, I wouldn't call saying a man like. So I think Cal is a fine-looking man. <laughs> I find Cal to be an attractive man, but that's not a same-sex attraction. I'm not erotically attracted to Cal. What I'm calling same-sex attraction, I think, is just you're you're attracted to someone of the same sex, like you're erotically attracted. That's different from what you're speaking of right there when you just say. Uh, you know, you can see a gentleman and think, yeah, he's an attractive man. He's a good-looking man. He's got ripped six-pack abs, or whatever it may be. But you have no like inward attraction to that. So that's that's how I'm using, and I think that's how most people would use same-sex attraction. It's not merely an observation that someone is attractive of the same sex, but it's an inward desire for that. Is that helpful? Well, doesn't sound like it was. I, I'm really trying to answer your question as honestly as I can. Okay, I could, we'll go. So we can circle back offline. Yes. <laughs> well, ask what you don't know. Uh. Uh, from the standpoint of like thinking about this
3: topic in an evangelistic way, I feel like like would you do you have
2: any uh, recommendations? It because I can I see going there with someone I have a relationship
3: with who may trust me. I feel like there's so many layers of, well, you're
2: a bigot, you're homophobic, you're non tolerant, you're da da da, that how do we even get to talking about the real stuff if we fly the flag of, you know. You know what
1: I'm saying?
0: Yeah, in, in one, I mean, I don't know, I haven't found myself stuck in those situations, honestly, because I think people just assume since I'm a conservative Christian, I'm not going to think about those things. And they actually, the people that I'm talking with don't tend to like, they're not looking for, I don't know. I'm just not looking for fights when I engage. So, I mean, there's different types. Of, I don't think I would be a very good apologist to be a hundred percent honest with you. Um, so I think there are people who are like really gifted in apologetics and all that stuff. I actually don't think that's me. Um, I'm not answering your question. I'll try to answer your question. In one sense, I would just say, don't worry about it. And instead, with the people that God has you around and the people that you are able to minister and share the gospel with, just minister the gospel with them as best you can. And don't worry about anybody calling you a bigot or a homophobe. And if they do, when they do, pray and ask God for courage and clarity for what would be the best, honest, honest, thing to say in response. I think I've been pegged a couple of times somebody saying something. I think I've just tried to respond honestly and not defensively and say, listen, I think you can identify something as a sin without actually being bigoted towards the person who's involved in that. I think that we have to make a differentiation between those two. And maybe they're just like, well, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, but I'm not sure if it's ridiculous. Could we talk about it or is that not something you want to talk about? And then they just say something else and then we're just kind of done. Um, so in a sense, I would say don't worry about it. Minister to the people that God seems to ha- give you connections with to minister to. And then ask him for help and for confidence and clarity if and when it comes up to respond honestly and truthfully. And know that the gospel is powerful and the word of God is powerful. Missy?
3: Conversations is to try to remember that they are also created in God's image and God loves them. Mm. And to try to just have an attitude of love, like let that be my motivation, rather than my nature is to be defensive, yeah, and almost argumentative. Just try to—I mean, I haven't had the opportunity, and I probably was wondering. Could could you just speak a little bit louder? What you're saying is really helpful. I said, see you? <laughs> I said that when I think about having those types of conversations. I try to approach it from the angle of love. They're created in God's image just as I am, and God loves them. So rather than my nature being defensive, which is really, I get like defensive, I think about, Lord, help me to love this sinner the way You loved me uh, and loved me, and just try to approach it kind of from that angle of, of love.
0: Sonia, then that's the last one. Go ahead.
2: I was going to say, Jimmy used to say, and this is before I was a Christian, at like parties and stuff where there were gay people, and people knew Jimmy was a Christian, so they would just start firing stuff at him, and he would just say, um, no one's going to be in hell because they're gay, and that kind of made me feel like, you know, like, yes, they're all going to hell, but you know, it's because you're, you know what I mean, you don't love God, You, you know what I mean, you don't trust Jesus as your savior like there's so much more to talk about here than the fact that you're gay like you know um, and another thing I was going to say is I think what BJ said tonight was actually really encouraging because what I've gotten from gay people is are you telling me that God is asking me to live a life without love you know because heterosexual people they get to get married and have this love partner and never be alone and God wants me to just be alone and be miserable because that's my life but what BJ is saying tonight was like Jesus like there are people who had robust complete lives that were not just miserable and lonely because they
0: messed up so i think that's makes good thing yeah we've got to remember and be confident that our our lens should be the lens of scripture not the lens of experience people are going to come back to you with rebuttals of the lens of their experience or the lens of their feeling because they're operating underneath the moral of authority of me myself and i and what you want to try to do is redirect them to the the lens of Scripture and how Scripture would interpret these things. So, uh, Brad, then we're going to close.
1: Which is why, in terms of evangelism, it wouldn't be my recommendation to, to to broach the topic with someone that you knew in, say, a same-sex relationship. You know, talk to them about Jesus. Wait for it to come up if they bring it up. But there's plenty of gospel conversations you can have with them to talk about sin about... I'm not saying you avoid
0: it at all costs, but, you know, you can have yeah, a doesn't of it all. Of yeah, him. often doesn't make sense to lead with it. Yeah. And, and that, doesn't that make sense, by the way, because isn't homosexuality in all sin, isn't it downstream from what we believe about God and the choices that we're making in regards to who's in charge, who and what do I love? That's primary, and then this is a secondary action that flows from those beliefs. Um, and so that's kind of what I think Sonia is saying Jimmy is getting at, which is there's truth to that. So, oh, okay. And then we're going to close that. Just a quick comment. I think the, the book um, that um, I think it's Rosario
3: Butterfield is um, just excellent in that it helps us to see how somebody ministers
2: to her.
0: Yeah. Can you remind us of the name of that book? It's uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, is that right? Okay. Uh, by Rosaria Butterfield.
3: The minister and his wife just invited her for dinner, and they just loved on her, and she found that uh, um attractive. You know, yeah. And they they didn't have an agenda. They just wanted to share the gospel with her. They shared meals with her, and over and over and over again, and she fell in love with Christ. And
0: she's now a Presbyterian minister's wife. Uh, and an effective writer and apologist. I'm sorry? Secret Thoughts. I believe it's Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I'm not sure about the first two words. But it's something, something. Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, and she's got a couple other books uh, out as well. Um, I think she's very effective in writing about these things. Let me close this in prayer. And if you have something, anything you want to talk about, well, then you can just come right on up here. Talk with your brothers and sisters. Have a good time. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for your word. And we pray, Father, that you'd continue to help us to uh, see it for what it is. It is true. It is right. It is good. It is holy. It is pure. It is wonderful. It is sweeter than honey. And it is more precious than gold. Uh, And Lord, help us to, to believe that and to trust that and to live happily underneath its authority, regardless of what our own hearts have to say and what anybody else has to say for that matter. And let us be happy people in Jesus, living underneath your authority, for your glory, for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.